All right, welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a special guest who's actually a friend um, over here in South Korea. We connected, I don't know, maybe about two years ago, I believe, yeah. through Facebook, right? And yeah. um, I think it was through like a posting I did, I believe. I, I don't even really remember, but I think I posted about like starting an esoteric studies group here in Seoul. And then I think that's how we connected. Do you even remember? <laughs> yeah, um, my memory, and it could be faulty, but my memory, <laughs> my memory is that a uh, mutual friend of ours who will remain nameless um, in, in Korea, a mutual friend of ours um, uh, introduced the two of us, or at least he, my memory is that he told me, hey, there's this guy that you, you know, might like to chat with because he's interested in in similar things as yourself. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, that's, I think that's my memory. Okay. Yeah. It was probably one or the other, or maybe a combination of both, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. That's uh, that kind of shows like how memory can be sort of misleading, right? Like you always have like people have different versions of what they saw at the time. Right. Or like, so it's always kind of sketchy when you base everything off of a memory, but um, anyways, yeah. Um, for the memories, listeners, yeah, okay, memories, yeah. memory is creative. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. For the listeners though, like, uh, we've been chatting for, I don't know, it's been like a couple years, but for the listeners, um, can you kind of introduce yourself and just in general, how you got into the esoteric and occult, because you go back, like, you know, it's been many years for you, right? Like, 20, 30 yes, years? I have I have uh, 10 or 15 years on you. So um, <laughs> it, it, as far as age is concerned. And yeah, so let me introduce myself and how I got into uh, the occult. Um, let's see. Um, I'm a teacher in Korea. I teach at a university and I've been here for quite a while. I love my job. I've been here for about 16 years. Before that, I was a teacher for about two or three years in California. Um, I moved to Korea because I was teaching uh, at a at, at sort of a low level, and it wasn't it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't solid, reliable uh, work. It was uh, it was me. Uh, what's it called? Um, uh, substitute teaching and. Mm -hmm. I would describe that as the best part-time job ever, but you know, sometimes <laughs> in life, sometimes in life, you don't want a part-time job, right? I mean, you, you, you need a full-time job. And so I was having difficulty getting into the teaching thing. Like I wanted to ideally teach math at the high school level, but I, I kept taking the tests and in California, they make the tests rather hard unless you have like, let's, it, let's say if you have a major, if you majored in math, uh, in college, then it's easy. They'll, they'll just let you be a teacher. But, uh, that, that was not my major in, in, um, uh, college. So mm -hmm. anyhow, uh, I liked teaching. So that's why I came over to Korea. As far as how did I get involved in the occult? Um, well, <clears throat> I would say that is the fault of my sister and my mom mainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they're both of what I would describe as very witchy, people, especially my mom. Mm -hmm. um, I remember at a young age, my mom uh, breaking out the tarot at, at, at parties and stuff. And okay, by the way, I was born in 1971. So like when you're a little kid, 
And if you're born in 1971, then this is like the mid seventies. Right. And so the mid seventies, sure. Like tarot and all that kind of stuff. It's so popular, like hippie shit, like Mm -hmm. so popular. Um, So yeah, my mom, very witchy person. Um, And I always thought of myself um, as like a a spiritual um, uh, and mystical sort of person. That's just the way my mom sort of, encouraged me to think of myself um and um uh, but it wasn't until later um that it, it sort of deepened for me and that was when I met a friend in, I, I dropped out of high school at, in my uh, junior year or um, right after my junior year finished I dropped out of high school and then I, I enrolled immediately in a community college and at that community college I met um what was to be one of my best friends for a few years, um, and he introduced me to the Thoth deck and Alistair Crowley and a bunch of other things. Okay, interesting. So it was sort of, um, uh, it sounds like uh, the background or your sort of family environment was uh, already had like a cult and mystical elements, but uh, it wasn't until later yeah. on in college you kind of yeah. came around and connected with that deck and everything. And um yeah, I think that you mentioned, um, we haven't really talked in detail about this, but I think that you mentioned you, didn't you eventually join like uh, the Thelemic Golden Dawn Order or something along those lines? Yes. Um, so uh, I was about 17 when I met this person that I mentioned. And um, uh, so I, after a short time of knowing him, I realized that he was interested in all these things, which I wanted to know more about. And so I said, Hey, will will you like sort of take me under your wing and, and like uh, teach me what you know? And he says, sure. And uh, like a short time after that, maybe let's say six months or so um, the Thelemic golden Dawn or the Thelemic order of the golden Dawn, either way is fine. Um, was was being birthed in its first year uh is officially 1990 but it was it was sort of in gestation in uh 19 in 1988 and 1989 Mm -hmm. Mm okay and this is in uh southern california i think you mentioned right that's right that's right um Mm -hmm. so my friend and i we uh both uh live in orange county and um he introduced me to David Cherubim, who was the main leader of the, let's just call it for, it's easier uh, to call it the TGD, Mm. um, the the Tholemic Golden Dawn. So he was the leader of the TGD um, and uh, he, but he lived in LA. And Mm -hmm. so um, I started attending magic classes in 1990, um, his, his magic classes, David Cherubim. Mm -hmm. And, um, after seeing him like teach, he's a really, he was a really good teacher. Mm. Um, he recently died a couple of years ago, but um, ah, okay. he was about, um, uh, let me see. I took some notes here. He was about six or seven years, my senior. So he was born in, in 1964, David Cherubim, but um, I was attending his magic classes and I really loved him. And so I thought, okay, this order that they're planning sounds like really cool. So I asked him, I'd like to join. He says, sure, that's fine. And I ended up joining in um, uh, uh, spring equinox, 1991. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. So I don't really know much about that order. It, to me, it's kind of interesting because you have Thelema and the Golden Dawn, right, in one name. And that's, uh-huh. not, I mean, people associate them, but they don't really consider them the same thing per se and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So what yeah. what, um, what can, maybe you can tell the listeners. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So yeah, what, what exactly is it? Yeah. So it's a funny thing. Like I'll, t- if you go onto the Thelema boards, a lot of times, a lot of times you will see people say, oh, well, the Golden Dawn is old Aeon and, you know, Thelema is new Aeon, right? And mm-hmm. in a sense, in a sense, that is true. But um, if you look at One Star in Sight, you'll notice that the name of the first order is the GD. <laughs> right, right. So, so this uh, would you say this order is kind of covering um, sort of like the preliminary work? Okay, so um, and I never joined the OTO, so I don't have any firsthand experience with that. So, uh, on the one hand, I cannot um, contrast the TGD with anything else. It was the only order that I ever belonged to. However, that said, uh, I have talked to other people and gotten an impression from reading various books and whatnot. Um, I have gotten an impression about other orders and other ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, but so like the, like if you, if you were to do an image search for the golden dawn and stuff, you'll see a lot of colorful implements and the furniture of the temple and the temple itself is extremely colorful. Mm-hmm. And um, then they wear these sort of ridiculous robes, right. Which are also, <laughs> which are also colorful. Mm-hmm. And so it, it has a, a slightly Masonic feel, you know, cause um, the, the initiations, for example, are, um, you know, sort of, you know, the, the GD was born of the SRIA, which was around 1850. And it, yeah, it, it has Masonic roots, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so they, they, um, is it similar in the sense that they, they practice like group rituals and things like this, whereas the AA is sort of a teacher to student one-on-one thing. Is right, that one right, of the, right. That's kind right, of one right. of the major differences. Yes, 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 totally. Like now I don't have any firsthand experience with the AA. However, I have what I've read. Yeah. Would confirm what you're talking about. Okay, cool. You mentioned, um, I've, I've seen his name come up, uh, David Cherubin. Hopefully I pronounced that right. But um, that's right. Okay, cool. Um, you mentioned that he was like a really good teacher. What, do, what yes. kind of qualities or um, what would you say about the way that he taught um, was specifically, you know, very good and beneficial to you? Cool. Um, so I was pretty young at the time and pretty impressionable, but, but that as a given, um, I think I'm a pretty good judge of character and I have a good sort of intuitive sense about people and um, I'm pretty good at at, um, identifying um, uh, hucksters and liars and stuff like that. And, um, but my impression of David and I I was later to become fairly close friends with him sort of apart from the order, but um, as a teacher, I, I liked his style because what he would do was basically he would lead a direct instruction class uh, of 30 to 60 minutes. And then he would have like a, what's it called? Um, like, um, 
a demonstration of some kind, you know, like if, if his class was about tarot, then he might lead like a path working type meditation. If his um, uh, lecture was about, uh, let's say a ritual, say the Phoenix, the ritual mass of the Phoenix, then he would actually, he would demonstrate the mass of the Phoenix for everybody to see. And um, uh, so you know, you could go home and have a much clearer idea of what this magic thing was all about by having been exposed, you know, sort of face-to-face, -face, having come face-to-face -face with it, you know? Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Sounds like he sort of, um, it's kind of both, right? Like he gave you the lectures and the knowledge, but then also like practical experience and showing how it actually looks or how to perform it in person could be a very, right. very beneficial, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Which is a lot different than just reading in a book, right? Because it's easy to misunderstand or... Um, yeah, well, the thing is, is like if you're, let's say you're 17 or 18 or whatever, and you just pick up this book, you know, you might think, well, wow, like it's impressive. It look, it seems really cool, but a lot of it is hard to figure out. Or even if you were, let's say 30 or 40, it doesn't, doesn't matter how old you were. If you just sure. look at the text... It's, it doesn't, it's, there's a lot of things that are not very clear in Crowley's writing, for example. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. A lot of people, this is something that you see online a lot, but since you come from a background of actually studying with a group or an order, and then obviously now you're kind of on your own doing your own thing, but uh -huh. do you think that there is value in, um, you know, joining a group or an order, or do you think that it's sort of better just to kind of go on your own or do you think it's kind of an individual basis? What would you say? Um, <clears throat> now I suppose everybody's different. And so in a sense, like I'm not real comfortable um, <laughs> speaking about what other people should do. Right. But um, sure. on the other hand, on the other hand, I did introduce a couple of my friends to the order and they seemed to get, they seemed to get a lot out of it. And, but the whole the whole time that I introduced them to it, because it was similar to me, like I didn't just hear about the TGD and then join, but instead, like I went to David's classes, I got a feeling for like what the hell he was doing, what the hell this magic thing was about. And so there was a at least about a year before I ended up being initiated, a, a year of me listening to David and seeing what kind of a person he was and like, you know, uh, also another good reason or another reason why David, I felt was a really good teacher was he was always open to people's questions. You know, he was always fielding questions. If you had any kind of questions, he was very, yeah, he, he let people ask whatever they wanted to ask. But anyways, so your question is, do I think it's a good or a bad thing or whatever? But uh, I would say it's, it's a good thing, but everybody's different. And so, you know, I mean, it might not be a good thing for you. Uh, I, in my, uh, right now in my life, I'm comfortable just being a, a solo practitioner. But um, if I found a good order where I, I found people I liked, I thought, I, I thought what they were doing was cool. I would love to, then I would join again another order. But for right now in Korea, there's, <laughs> there's not much, not many opportunities for that. Right, definitely. Yeah, another um, person that you've mentioned to me quite a bit through our chats was uh, Christopher Hyatt. And also, I don't really know that much about him, but maybe you can also talk a little bit. Were you also, did you ever get a chance to meet up with him? Or it seems like you've kind of um, studied and maybe practiced some of his work. Kind of curious yeah. about him. Yeah, okay. So that was, 
getting to know Hyatt was also part of my pre-initiation. Like uh, first I read some of his books. Mm -hmm. Then I, I ended up giving him a call, a friend of mine, the same guy I alluded to earlier, a friend of mine gave me his phone number. And uh, so on the phone, I'm like introducing myself and he says, okay, let's meet on my boat in Long, in Long Beach. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds weird, <laughs> right? By the, by the way, so uh, Hyatt's years, he was born in 1943 and he died unfortunately in 2008. So he, mm -hmm. he wasn't, he wasn't that young or, or that old really when he died. But when I knew him, he was roughly uh, in his mid forties, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I met him on his boat and basically like I, I was expressing my interest in joining the, the TGD and he was sort of, um, gauging my suitability for that order he his background is in reikian physiotherapy which mm. we did a little bit we did a little bit of that on his boat and very basic stuff because we were only on his boat for about 90 minutes mm -hmm. um and yeah he has a, a a background in yeah reikian physiotherapy he started falcon publishing in 1980 and in the united states oh, wow. Yeah, in the in the United States, there was only a couple publishing houses, uh, Wiser, Falcon, and and maybe one or two others that were, you know, up until let's say you know, 1994 or something, there was only a couple publishing companies that were publishing Crowley. So you would, mm. if you were if you were interested in, in that kind of thing, you definitely came across Falcon Publishing, um, uh, one of the main authors that or the, what is it called? The sort of marquee uh, <laughs> uh, authors was Robert Anton Wilson. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why the name is very familiar, actually. Oh, that's pretty and, cool. Oh, and Hyatt, Hyatt was also at my initiation. So um, there, there were many memorable things about my 1991 spring equinox initiation, but him actually being there and participating in the initiation, that was also... Uh, yeah, a highlight that I, I can't forget. Oh, that's amazing. For somebody who's uh, interested in checking out his work, what would you, where would you recommend to start? Because um, I'm sure a lot of people, like I've heard of him even prior to you mentioning him, but I haven't really like read through any of his stuff. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who may listen who may not be familiar. Um, okay. Where would you I recommend, would... like, uh, what kind of, what book or books would you recommend checking out? Well, there's really one that comes to mind. Um, so um, there's a lot of his later work that I haven't bothered to check out, uh, but one of his first works is called Undoing Yourself. U-N-D-O-I-N-G, Undoing Yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, then, and then it has like a subtitle, like something like Energized Meditation or something like that. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check yeah. that out. I, I, I've has, heard of that one as well. Yeah, definitely have to check it, that out. It has very Hatha yoga type uh, oriented exercises. Um, and also like you, you've read Prometheus Rising, correct? Uh, yes. Okay. It's similar in, in spirit very much to that, you know? Okay. That sounds excellent. I'll have to check that out. Um, 
Yeah, I'm curious because uh, we we've been talking back and forth for a couple of years about you know esotericism, occultism, and other topics. But yeah. what what do you think are like common misunderstandings of this area? Because you, you mentioned that like a mutual friend, you guys are into this kind of the same weird shit or whatever, right? But uh, what what would you say are like some common misunderstandings of the occult or even of Thelema, since that's kind of mm. a major uh, branch of it, right? Okay. Um... Well, it's, it's almost like where to start, right? There's a, <laughs> there's a, we could, we could have at least two or three shows on this, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Each, each show being two hours long, but um, <laughs> some of, some of my gripes would be um, okay. So I recently bought two books on um basically like a historical take on Satanism. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Satanism as a thing doesn't actually get started until the mid 19th century. Mm. Okay. And so in this way, in this manner of speaking, or the sense that I mean here, Satanism is where somebody decides here is a, a character we all know and I'm going to worship him. Okay. That that's, that's what Satanism is. Right. Sure. Um, and if you, if you look at the historical record, like if you do, if you study witchcraft, for example, historical witchcraft and historical quote unquote Satanism, you will find the same thing. It doesn't appear in the historical record until the mid 19th century. And so people's idea of even just something so simple as Satanism is wrong. So like, for example, most people think of when you say witchcraft, they might think as a synonym, they might think Satanism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it, if you, you go, mm -hmm. go ahead. if you think of like Crowley, right? Like if I mention him to friends, they'll be like, oh, that he's like a Satanist or, you know, even for people right. who haven't even read any of what he put out there, it's sort of automatically, I feel like he's associated with like Satanism or devil worship yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. Right. And devil worship similarly is not really a thing until the mid 19th century. So the, all the witch burnings and stuff, so, and like the grimoires, for example, if you look at the grimoires, I mean, they're basically, there's two basic explanations for these grimoires. Number one, there's a quote unquote clerical underground um, or, or a necromantic clerical underground. And number two, it's just sort of like folk magic, right? But in mm -hmm. both, in both instances, basically these are Christians who are doing <laughs> this stuff and witchcraft in this sense is more like natural magic and, and like, you know, making herbal like remedies and stuff. I mean, there's a variety of, uh, of ways to understand witchcraft and Satanism and all that kind of thing. But most of the ways that, that regular people who don't look into this or the occult for that matter, who don't look at this, they have a, yeah, they have a completely wrong idea, you know, like, mm. um, and then like Aleister Crowley, for example, his, he's not even in a sense, he's not even writing about magic. He's writing more about mysticism than he is magic. 
Mm, that's a good point. Right, right. Um, which is kind of a, that's a whole conversation itself. How do you differentiate? Like, how do you see, what do you see the difference between um, mysticism and magic being? Okay, so um, there's an interesting thing. If you, if you look at scholarly studies in regards to magic, what, ha what, what you end up finding is that magic is other people's religion. Just mm -hmm. like the, just like the devil is other people's God. <laughs> well, that's a good uh, explanation. Yeah. So, um, magic is, is in a, in, in a very real sense, not very hard to, you, it's hard to draw a line between where does magic start and religion end or religion start and magic end or whatever. Like, so if you look at the Catholic mass, for example, mm -hmm. If you were an alien, you would look at that and you'd be like, oh, they're doing magic. Cool. Right on. Mm. You know? Right. Um, so like, but one of the, one of the main sort of differences that scholars see uh, a common difference between what, what a lot of times is regarded as sort of vanilla religion. And then magic is magic uses the language of command, commanding. Whereas religion uses the, the language of like asking. Mm, okay. So, so like, for example, if you, if you think of the regular common Christian prayer, it's like, please God, you know, please do this, please, you know, you're not commanding God, right? Sure. Sort of supplicating to. Right. Supplication. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at, you know, a basic ritual, like, uh, for example, the invocation of Thoth or mm -hmm. Tehuti. Um, at the beginning, it might sound like supplication, but you get in towards the middle and it's an identification with the God. And you all of a sudden are like the, basically the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. So it has a sense of um, agency, so to speak, right? Like you yes, are, yes. it's sort of the empowerment of the individual uh, within this sort of um, uh, maybe unified field of consciousness or however you want to describe it, right? Whereas religion would be, um, to, to some degree, at least the way you're explaining it, it's almost like a separation or you and then the God outside uh, that you're, you're either like supplicating to or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I see, I see a lot of um, maybe blogs or posts about like the differences between uh, magic and mysticism. And it seems like a lot of people these days uh, sort of lean more towards uh, like sort of, um, what would you say, sort of not uh, skipping the mysticism part and then going um, straight into like, Oh, I just, I'm just going to jump straight into like some sort of like practical magic, right? Like practical operations. And so what's your view on that? Because for you, you kind of started with the, you joined that order and um, sort of trained in mystical practices, right? Do you, um, do you think that, uh, I mean, it's obviously, again, up to the individual, but do, do you see there being value in having some, some background in mystical practices as well? Sort of like how Crowley taught and um, other orders throughout time? Well, I like... I like Jake Stratton Kent's take on this. He says basically mm -hmm. like um, there's been this unfortunate pattern in Western mystery tradition where like 
white magic is okay mm-hmm. and black magic is bad. And then if you, if you say, okay, well, uh, let me accept that for the moment, but what is white magic? And, the, and then, you know, basically it's like studying books, you know, <laughs> and then what, what is black magic? It's, it's doing stuff. It's, 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 uh, it's actually, you know, performing whatever, you know, rights that are, quote unquote, practical, get you something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so would you say that it's really, do you see them as like totally different than, in other words, like if one cared to just totally skip the mysticism part, because that's not, you know, where, where someone's interests lie, or there's not necessarily value. Could, do you see them as like feeding off one another? I, I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. Like, uh, would, would you say like practicing practical magic, could help you maybe in mysticism or having a solid foundation of mysticism could help you the other way around as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. Let me give you an example. Um, I think that Crowley's system is pretty much the best system that is available for Western people. And his system is a combination of magic and mysticism, yoga and, and magic. Mm-hmm. Um, now he says, Crowley says that basically at the beginning, if you have not yet attained your HGA, any other magic is black magic. Now I can agree or disagree with him on that point, but, but it, it isn't, it is one of his uh, sort of um, doctrines. And um, mm-hmm. it, it, interestingly, it puts the lie to the, to the whole like, oh, well, he's evil or <laughs> he's, you know, <laughs> he's doing bad stuff. It's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> right, right, right. Whereas like most of the system is really aimed towards uh, sort of spiritual attainment. Yeah, and, yeah. And like you said, he doesn't even really advise or at least in his system, doing like practical magic doesn't come till later on, right? Much yeah. later on. Um, yeah. But uh, I think that, as you mentioned, Jake Stratton Kent, he's some, someone who's came along and kind of flipped everything over, right? At yeah, least, shaking, at things, least, shaking things up. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I actually, um, I learned about him, I believe through you, I've heard of him maybe like once through a, a book, like mentions or something like that, or posts that I read, but um, you were the one who was like, really, ah, oh, you got to check out this book. I think you mentioned to me a few times and I was like, all right, well, I think I finally cracked. I was like, okay, I got to check out some of his writing, right? Because if you're mentioning it that much, it's like, okay, it's probably, it's probably a reason, right? <laughs> like if it was like a light suggestion, you know, you wouldn't be so um, vocal about it, I suppose, right? And so, yeah. Um, yeah, I was just really blown away by the guy's writing style, just because um, I know I've read quite a lot of material and um, I, I definitely have an appreciation for his writing style. It's almost like leagues or levels beyond a lot of other writing out there, right? Like yeah, not even yeah. not even just the content, but like, the you know, just the style in general, I would say. But um, yeah, yeah, like I you just- said... Oh, go ahead, the yeah. style, the style is great because, like, it feels on the one hand pretty, pretty academic, but on the other mm-hmm. hand, like, not stuffy, you know? Right. Ooh, that's a really good way to describe it. It is very academic, very historic, 
a lot of references but at the same time it's very engaging like you're reading like you're going on an adventure it's not it's not like dry researched material that you get from a lot of like grim grimoire historian historians i guess you would say or right right which which are interesting too in their own right but they don't the writing style doesn't really it's like being in a history class versus like a cool history podcast or something i don't know Um, yeah yeah yeah, like I don't know if you have you ever uh, listened to uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? Have you heard of that podcast? Um, I think I've heard of it, but I have I haven't listened. Yeah, but that's kind of how it feels to me. He's he's very um cool. he tells like stories of history, like the Mongol series is really good, and like I've read uh, about Mongolian history, but then when you listen to that podcast, he goes through all like the real important details, but it just presented in such a it's packaged up so well and it's so engaging. There's never a moment of boredom. That's how, at least when I feel when I, uh, when I read Jake's writing, it's like, I'm never, you know, uh, you read a lot of other people's writing, you kind of like doze off or, Oh, I've heard that before. Or, you know, but when you read, at least for me, Jake's writing is very engaging. To be honest, it reminds me a lot of Crowley himself. Like Mm -hmm. that's one of the great things about Crowley is there's a lot of humor in his, in his writing uh, but it, you know, it's fairly serious, you know, stuff at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I would say that too. Um, but yeah, Jake in general, he sort of um, mix things up or shake things up. What are, what are some yeah, yeah. Uh, major, uh, what would you say? Like mental shifts or uh, perspectives that changed or new ideas that formed after reading his writing, because you're a lot more versed in his writing than me. I'm just kind of like getting into it, read a, read maybe like three or four of his books so far, I think. Well, in a sense, like uh, a lot of what I have gotten from Jake's writing is not so much like new information, but rather confirmation of things that I already knew, but I wanted to hear more about. So uh, Mm. let me give you a couple, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Number one, uh, the sort of centrality of myth in magic. This is like something I think that the witchy people or the Wiccan people or the witchcraft people, they do a lot better than the Thelema people. The Thelema Mm. people seem to like, just like take all the juice out of magic and like (laughs) put everything to the Kabbalah. It's just everything fits into the Kabbalah. (laughs) Like after you've sliced and diced everything that thinly, there's no juice left. You just, you've sucked it dry. There's nothing there anymore. Right. And so mm-hmm. I feel, I feel like uh, Jake has reinvigorated a, a possibly Thelemic viewpoint. Now you don't, you don't have to be Thelemic to enjoy Jake, but mm-hmm. he, he definitely has a Thelemic stripe to him. So, uh, so that's one thing myth, the centrality of myth in magic. And the uh, one of the second things, what was I thinking? Um, uh, I think it's escaped me for the moment. Um, yeah, I totally agree with what you just said, though, because like even me doing my own practice and own studies, it's mm-hmm. like sometimes when I discuss them with people, it's like I feel like it's almost like they want to do anything they can to fit it into the Kabbalah framework. And it's all, it almost right. gets irritating. It's like, why? Yeah. It's almost yeah. like they, they have this. Um, I'm not even saying that Kabbalah isn't a great roadmap or the tree of life. It can be right. And I mean, it has its usage, at least in my eyes, it has, um, it's interesting. It has uh, its applications and what have you. But at the same time, it's like, if you're filtering every single experience 
through it, it's almost like you're not actually uh, fully in these experiences anyways, because you're already in that analytical, how can I fit this into this model that I, it's almost dogmatism really, I feel. Okay, I remember the the other thing that I wanted to bring up in regards to, um, uh, I feel like reading Jake was like, I really would have loved to have had the like Gia Sophia, one of the, the volumes in his Encyclopedia Goetica. I really would have loved to have had this like in 1990 or 1995, but unfortunately, unfortunately it came out like around 2010. But okay, so the other thing was like, the ancient origins, uh, number one, and number two, the, the incorrect labeling of Goetia. So when people, unfortunately, Crowley sort of, um, he propagates this notion of Goetia as a book, but Goetia is not a book. Goetia is, basically, it, mean, it means magician, and it's a, mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, uh, unfortunately it, it's like a term of abuse uh, mm. or it became, it became a term of abuse. If you go back to, if you go back to around 300 BC or something like that, it, I don't think it had those negative connotations, but so there's high, high magic and low magic, right? And low magic was Goetia, right? And high mm -hmm. magic was, was, you know, what the Magus does. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so him teasing out that thing was, was really like felt really good and felt f freeing to me. And then the other thing was the sort of ancient origins, right? Like my, my intro to magic was um, very scholarly. I would read books like by Walter Burkert, who, you know, he, he did a lot of uh, research into mainly uh, like Greek mythology and he published a lot of his books in the uh, 70s and 80s mm -hmm. I think he, even before as well but like yeah I mean if you look at for example the Eleusian mysteries right mm -hmm. like there's a definitely magical sort of vibe with these Eleusian mysteries right oh no doubt no doubt and you know I mean to me like if you're a modern practitioner you know, you might want to look into this kind of thing. And, but <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of Thelema people are, are, um, are just like, well, I just, it doesn't fit into my Kabbalah. I can't, <laughs> it does not <laughs> compete, does not compute, you know? Right, right, right. And that's a really good point. It's, uh, I think it's easy, I suppose, if you're um, kind of starting out from like a GD or Thelemic background to kind of think like that's when everything started. Rather than right. that's when, you know, some people assembled knowledge and, you know, the knowledge they had at the time into a system that they made, right? <laughs> Rather than, you know, like now that's, that's kind of like, it's almost like an occult renaissance in a way where you have all these scholars and practitioners like digging up um, like original manuscripts or even some of the same uh, material that the Golden Dawn used, right? And sort of getting more fuller translations of it and, um practicing it rather than through an actual or a different rather than through sort of a, the Kabbalah framework that the Golden Dawn kind of ran it through I guess you would say right I actually yeah. saw something the other day I couldn't stop laughing I think it said uh hopefully I don't butcher the quote it was something like uh the Golden Dawn I actually can pull it up hold on I think I saved it it was something about it related the Golden Dawn to Microsoft hold on okay here it is I actually nice. found it uh the gold okay the Golden Dawn brand 
was eventually to become a kind of Microsoft in the esoteric subculture. <laughs> in, in such a world, the decisions that Mathers made while poring over his books have kind of taken on a life of their own. So I think that's a pretty pertinent quote in regards to uh, sort of, you know, going back and kind of seeing how things were at the time and not necessarily going through that uh, Microsoft, because ultimately these are all sort of operating systems in a way, right? Like Thelema or Golden Dawn or whatever um, ideology or system you decide to take on, right? Hyatt, Hyatt wrote another uh, book. Uh, I think he had a co-author with this book, but it was called Pax with the Devil. It was published in 1993 mm -hmm. and it was um, sort of ahead of its time. Uh, especially from sort of a Thelemic perspective, which has been allergic for so long uh, of these grimoire traditions. And it, it included like three or four different grimoires in there. And um, uh, Jake uh, quote or uh, cites this book uh, in a few of his books. So um, that was another uh, thing I appreciated about Hyatt was he was he was willing to look at these things that other people were not looking at at the time. Mm, okay, yeah, and it sort of uh, sort of reached a um, not a climax, but it's just very popular for people to go back and uh, dig in. But that being said, I almost feel like uh, this is just my perspective, but I want to get your take too. At sure. the same time, like we're kind of you know talking about the. Um, uh, like the Thelema, the Golden Dawn side, but at the same time, I almost feel like there's other people on the other extreme, I guess you would say, where it's uh -huh. like, it's almost like they're looking, they're going back. It's like, they expect to find some hidden secret. Like, uh, does that make sense? It's like, oh, if I just undig one more manuscript, then it's like this search for the Holy, <laughs> the Holy Grail that's prob probably not there. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. what, what's, your, what's your kind of view on that? Like, I actually really like that people are digging up and translating. I think it's amazing, to be honest. So and, to uh, be, on, to be yeah. honest, my, my engagement with the grimoires right now uh, is, is almost nil. I, I mm -hmm. am interested in it, in, uh, in that, in sort of a, a detached intellectual manner. I'm not, I'm not a practitioner of that. So, you know, I don't, you know, I don't spend most of my day thinking about judging how other people are approaching it because I don't know. I don't know the right way. Right. Sure. Sure. Uh, and let me, let me just um, uh, uh, confess to you, like the, the things that hold a lot of meaning for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, I like something called the Avatamsaka Sutra. It's a Buddhist sutra. Uh, it's known as the flower, or in English, it's called the flower garden, garland, sorry, not garden, garland, <laughs> the flower garland sutra, which uh -huh. your Buddha, uh, when you visited that Buddhist temple, he mentioned it. Um, uh, it is a criminally, in my view, a criminally underappreciated, at least in the occult community, book. Like, it's an amazing mm. book. It's, it, it, it presents a vision of infinity, which will blow your socks off. Um, mm. So that's one of my major influences. And it, it, to this day, it, it, it's just, I, I, have, I have not seen many things that can compare to this thing, the Avatamsaka Sutra. Really, I would recommend all viewers or listeners who are interested in Buddhism to check that out. Um, and then let's see, um, 
Yeah, actually, awesome. I actually looked it up. You can um, you can find that online. Like you can download a PDF of it. But mm -hmm. um, and there's also like uh, I also found a um, summary of it somewhere online that you can download. But it does cool. seem like a hard, somewhat hard text to find like a physical copy of. Like if yeah, you unfortunately. Okay, so let me, uh, your listeners might be curious or interested to hear. If they were to publish the whole thing, it would be minimum 20 volumes. It's huge. <laughs> now, the, the, the version that I read was published in 1993, and it's roughly a thousand pages. But th <laughs> it's, that is a very abridged edition. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, the one that I... Um got a copy of, I think it was like 1100 pages or something mm -hmm. like that, but uh, interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's even an abridged version. It's not even the full version is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but it's really big in Korean Buddhism and in East Asian Buddhism uh, and in Mahayana. Uh, the mm -hmm. other one, of the, another uh, text that I would really recommend all people, all, all your listeners who are interested in Buddhism to check out is the, Vimala Kirti Nirdesa. Uh, mm. Nirdesa. Nirdesa means uh, instruction. And mm. Vimala Kirti is the name of a person. Now, supposedly he's a, 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 a historical um, uh, friend of, of the Buddha, mm -hmm. um, a person who lived at the same time as the Buddha. But the, uh, our first um, actual examples of this book come from the second century. So um, people are not certain if he's an actual historical person, but that's how he's mm -hmm. presented. That's how he's presented in the book. And the book is mainly, <coughs> <clears throat> the book is mainly about um, how lay practitioners can attain the highest Nirvana. Mm, yeah. I've actually read that. Um before it's been a quite a while but yeah that was a great one that was definitely a great one and i'm gonna have to definitely go through the full um avatam saka sutra or flower garland sutra i believe right in english yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah definitely i think some of these buddhist texts are definitely underappreciated and uh at least uh when i was studying uh buddhism back in america i think like there, there are a couple that were common. I think like the Dhammapada was a very big one mm -hmm. that most people kind of get into. But yep. yeah, Buddhism just has so many, it's so so many layers of it and so many sutras and texts, right? I, I remember looking at a um, the summary. I think Avatamsaka Sutra is almost described as like a psychedelic fractal universe. Mm -hmm. Sound like the way they described it. There's some uh, reviews of it yes. were really cool. Really yeah. Awesome. Now that now, if you've never read it, you might think. Okay, I mean, maybe he's exaggerating. Maybe no, it's totally how it is. It is very much like if you read this book, you will definitely feel like you're on drugs. I'm not. I'm not joking. <laughs> That's awesome. That's how you know a book's really powerful, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Thank you gave you those kind of effects, right? Um, what about like since you've you've done all these studies and you've uh, been a part of some groups and what have you? Do you have any regular practices that you do? You know, yeah, either on I a daily gonna, basis or regularly. I was, yeah, I was going to get into that. Um, the other things that I would say are very much inf influential on me mm -hmm. um, is uh, Raja Yoga mm -hmm. and um, the the Orphic hymns and the Chaldean oracles mm -hmm. and I've, the and mm -hmm. the, th the the theurgy of Iamblichus. 
Oh yeah, that's that's a good one. I've actually never read the Chaldean Oracles. I'm gonna have to go through that. It's a pretty uh, major. Text. Yeah, okay, so it's yeah. it's interesting, but it's also it can be disappointing because it's a bunch of fragments, and so like if you're sort of wanting a story or something that that hangs together, mm -hmm. unfortunately, the Chaldean Oracles do not hold together as much as you might like. But that said, there's some intensely um, what's the word, um, vivid poetry in there. And that, that's why I really like it. It's just, uh, quite, uh, striking. Mm -hmm. I'd have to check that out. The theurgy that's uh, also known as like ancient Egyptian mysteries or something like that. Okay. So it depends on sort of who you ask and which historical era you're talking about, but, but the main sort of, um, Iamblichus is the first guy. He's a guy from Syria mm -hmm. uh, in, in like around the fourth century or so. Mm -hmm. um, he makes up his own system uh, sort of in response to Plotinus and mm. Porphyry. And um, it's theurgy. And if you read like Rigardi's book, um, the, uh, the Tree of Life, he talks a lot about Theurgy and Iamblichus, and that's where I first heard about it. Um, and Theurgy is basically just like um, a way to connect with God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read through little parts of it, but I haven't read it in its entirety. That has like the letter, letter to Pofri too, right? Right, right. Uh -huh. So he, one of, one of Iamblichus' main ideas is that the, the world is holy and you must, you must use the world to help you get back to God. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, it, it's often seen as a defense of magic. Mm, okay. Rather than it's sort of because, the opposite of the Christian doctrine, kind of like the world is right. fallen and you're sinful. Well, also um, in, in, in a lot of Christian thought, like there's this, very deep distinction between like the heavenly world where God is and then uh, the f us in the fallen world. Right. <laughs> right. And, and Iamblichus says, no, no, no. You know, this world is holy because it helps you get back to God. Mm, okay. And that was, that, that was written quite a long time ago too, right? Like that was, um, do you, do you recall the year? I think it was like, 1700 years ago i may be way off though that was my guess um pretty, I'm sorry, it's pretty old uh, uh are you talking about iamblichus yes yes really old text right like yeah um he, he lived around the fourth century fourth century okay so that's pretty close i think i got it <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. 1700 years ago or so roughly speaking right um yeah that's great i mean that's uh sort of uh, definitely opposed to the uh, theology that was coming up around that time. It's like, you know, his surrounding, like the, the like yeah, I mean, he, he, and, he's mm -hmm. one of these cool pagan guys, right? He's one of the last, the last pagans. Um, mm -hmm. So after the fourth century, paganism is uh, extremely difficult to do because Christianity sort of um, finally gets a hold of world worldly power and uh, the popes uh, become kings and whatnot, and, and they decide, okay, you can you can do one Orthodox Christianity, and everything else is out. Mm. Right, right, right. That's pretty. Uh, it's pretty.
pretty prolific <clears throat> character. How would you define uh, paganism? Because there's like neo-paganism and paganism. What would you say are like uh, underlying? Maybe well, like I use the term. Okay, there's there's a variety of ways to use the term, but I use the term generally just to mean anything non-Christian. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's the thing about paganism when I see people use it, including like my mom uses the term quite a, frequently as well. It seems like everybody has a different. Um, like to me, well, it doesn't really mean that much because I've heard it been used in so many different ways. Does that make one sense? of the yeah, one of the roots of the word is a country. So it's like the religion of country people. Mm, okay. So like folk religion or something. Rural, like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Rural yeah, yeah. religion. Okay. Yeah. 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 It usually has kind of kind of like an earthy vibe too, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the way my mom uses sort of like uh almost like in like a druid context or something like that. Like <laughs> yeah. connected like that. But um Oh, yeah. Very interesting. All right. So we, we uh, kind of went over a lot of your um, influences and um, sort of books that you recommend or that had a big impact on you. Is there any others you would uh, you want to mention, too? Yeah. So I mentioned Raja Yoga. And mm -hmm. so anybody who um, I ran into this great uh, little section in Equinox Volume 1, Number 4, where Crowley is describing his uh, practice of Raja Yoga uh, in uh, Burma um, and in also in uh, Kandy, Ceylon, um, with Alan Bennett. And he is talking about how Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga, after a certain uh, bit of time, how they become sort of intertwined. You can't really... Um, you can't separate the one from the other, right? Mm. And um, so <clears throat> uh, a couple of years ago, I got the Hatha Yoga Padapika and Shiva Samhita. These are two uh, really easy to read texts. Now, some of it, if you don't have any exposure to Vedanta or to, or to uh, you know, uh, let's say Vivekananda or, or whatever, then you might find it difficult. But... Um, if you do have a little bit of exposure to yoga, they're, they're not that hard. And they include all these different poses. And then they include um, uh, various like Kundalini, like Raja Yoga type visualization techniques. Really good stuff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Currently going through the uh, Shiva Samhita right now, actually. Nice. Great. nice. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I got really interested in um, those texts. It was way back like... Uh, Oh, either high school must've been the end of high school. I, uh, my grandma had like, grandma's like an old school hippie from the sixties. Right. So she had like Yogananda books and things like that. So I started reading like Yogananda and then got into like the Vedanta stuff, Ramakrishna and nice uh, Vivekananda and went to a few, like there's actually some Hindu temples too in uh, California, like a Vedanta society and yeah. self, -re self realization fellowship went to some of those uh, many, many years ago and then sort of re discover you know them you know, you know what's cool you know what's cool about the vedanta society what's that well i mean one of the things that i think is cool about it is like okay so vivekananda like he i think he died at age 39 really that's, young that's fucking nuts i didn't know that until uh, i think you posted it recently i had no idea honestly yeah so like here's this guy and he's he's like doing the the speech circuit 
uh, all over America and Europe. The guy's crazy. He's doing all these speeches for years. And, um, but anyways, he, yeah, he's the person who sets up the Vedanta society. I think he does it with another person. Um, but one of the cool things, um, and this is also this, this, um, goes back to the two texts I mentioned as well, is they're, they're not really Buddhism and they're not really Hinduism. They're, they're a weird combo of both. Right. It's almost like, um, at least I think when I first got into Vedanta and Vivekananda, I think they were described as uh, like a reaction to Buddhism or like yeah. the Hindu response to Buddhism or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of times when you get these syncretisms, when you get these these eclectic sort of movements, mm -hmm. I think what's happening generally is um, people are responding to dogmatism. They're like, hey, stop telling me what to fucking do. You know, I'd like to do it this way. <laughs> right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, th those are great. I mean, the Vedanta literature is definitely great. And if, if any of the listeners are in America, I'm sure you can find, I'm sure there's still like Vedanta societies. The place that I went, it was really beautiful. This is in California. Really beautiful, uh, great, um, uh, great landscapes. And they had all these cool, like uh, Krishna, Jesus, like, all these cool like religious uh iconography and statues mm, and yeah it was a very very like mystical um like temple space i guess you would say so definitely check it out if you have the chance nice yeah all right yeah so we went into the raja yoga stuff that is insane that he put out that much work and went on all the tours and wasn't he also like one of the first if not the first like eastern yogi or guru to come lecture in the west um, I think yes and no. Um, so like there's, I mean, the connections between East and West have been tenuous on the one hand, but not non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for example, like you've got Piro, the skeptic who went via Alexander in the fourth century BCE. He went over to India and... <clears throat> So a lot of people think that his uh, system ended up influencing Buddhism and vice mm. versa. Um, but uh, you, you've got various people who have, you know, traveled in between East and West, you know, for, for millennia and centuries. But, um, but yeah, in, the, in a modern sense, yeah. I mean, Vivekananda is, is really like, you, you can't really compare anybody to him. He's, he's the towering figure. Mm -hmm. No doubt, no doubt. Um, all right, cool. I, that, that's a pretty big reading list for a lot of people who might, might or might not be hearing these books for the first time, right? And uh, even for me, I got definitely made some notes on- uh, Okay, and then- either Read uh, or reread or whatnot. You mentioned uh, things that maybe uh, I thought where people had misconceptions about magic. Mm. Uh, so another, another misconception, I think, and this is, this is where I get uh, uh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be, be uh, as controversial as possible. I heard that, uh, that that'll make you go viral. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think magic is inherently political. And a lot of people have decided that um, no, you know, if you try to inject politics into magic, it's no longer magic. So now mm -hmm. I can argue, I can actually argue that point. It's not, it's not a completely incorrect point. 
I mean, there is a point where, you know, you're no longer doing magic. You, you're, you're doing politics. Right. But, sure. but I do think that, okay. So like Lieber 77, for example, mm-hmm. Lieber Oz, um, it's a short statement that Crowley put out in 1941 and it was like an anti-fascist statement, uh, sort of timely for its time, you know, um, probably, uh, to support the war effort, you know, the allies. Um, but, uh, yeah, I forget about Lieber 77. I think magic is about power and all power has a political, um, aspect to it. Mm, okay. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, sure. I mean, clearly politics are about power and power structures and um, the management of power or the abuse of power, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, I I think that, yeah, I think that there's definitely a connection. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think maybe you can elaborate more, but I I would say that at least the way I see, I think magic is like individual, sort of empowering the individual and uh, sort of um, it gives the individual sense of agency and the ability to sort of enact or co-create reality, I feel like in a way, whereas um, politics, it's like more of a, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm not. Well let me give you a few. Explain it. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a few quotes. So um, do you know Peter Gray? Uh, yes. Okay. So he's one of the heads of Scarlet Imprint. And I was reading um, some of his book, uh, which is a collection of articles, uh, The Brazen Vessel, 2019. Mm-hmm. He, says, he says at one point, angel magic is a political necessity. <laughs> That's an interesting statement. Yeah. Um, so I thought we could discuss that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. What, what did, um, maybe you can elaborate a little more on that. So how, what, well, what's the he also mm-hmm. Okay, so he also says uh, in the same essay, power and sovereignty are prime occult concerns. Mm, okay, I would, I would then, agree with that. And then he's also, he's trying to like say, you know, he's not talking about like SJW wokeism. He's <laughs> not, you know, he's not talking about, you know, PMC struggle sessions sponsored by Google uh, or your employer, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> do you know the term struggle session? No, no, actually I don't. Okay. Um, it is a term from the cultural revolution, Mao's cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the sixties um, th- uh, there was this, the youth were sort of on fire and they had these uh, what they called struggle sessions. And they were like where they would, you know, um, humiliate their teachers because they were not sufficiently Marxist or communist or whatever. Mm, interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, the uh, <coughs> I, I'm trying to, trying to say when I talk about political, I am not talking about struggle sessions. <laughs> right, know? right, right. I'm not talking about, you know, like a lot of times if you look in the news, what what passes for politics nowadays is, <laughs> you know, is these liberals trying to shame people for not having 
the the right you know you know viewpoint on this or that you know that's not what i think of as politics that's that's <laughs> that's manipulation that's fucked right exactly exactly it's a distraction it's uh mm. it's nonsense i think mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. so interesting okay so you see what what do you see um so you see magic is inherently political you see that like well, the other it, reason mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons why i think that i mean number mm-hmm. one like uh we started this this conversation and i was saying like magic is sort of like the religion of other people just like mm-hmm. the devil the devil is the god of other people right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so if you choose to do magic you are automatically sort of placing yourself in this uncomfortable position you're you're putting yourself in a minority position you're you mm. you're almost you're almost self-exiling yourself right um mm. so how could that not be political right how could you do that without any political intent mm. okay yeah that, that makes sense I, I think the like the ramifications on society or the individual's relationship to society is definitely there right so that's one aspect i mean the other aspect is you know when we at least when we first get into magic a lot of times it's about self-empowerment right mm-hmm. and um so you feel like you lack power of you know or agency and you would like to to reclaim that somehow and so how do you do that and magic promises to answer that question for you um and I, I can't see that but as at least mildly political and maybe very political yeah that makes sense that makes sense um yeah i think it's sort of giving the power back to the people in a sense right and it sort of it sort of allows you to chart your own course and design your own reality in a way as opposed to the scripts that you're receiving from politicians or mm. um, you know, the news cycle or <laughs> whatever the agenda of a given country or its administration is, right? Mm. I, I mm. kind of see it. I kind of see it, at least a connection there as well. Because mm. like, okay, so if you're not, if you're not sort of, um, if you're not deeply questioning things and if you're not sort of forming your own, uh, if you're not detaching from the imprints that are constantly bombarded on you, <laughs> <laughs> then basically magic has been done on you, right? Like you have yeah. been in, in effect, you are at the effect uh, of the, or at con- the mercy at the mercy yeah, of the government's magic, right? <laughs> through the symbolism that they use through the messages that they transmit. Well, that, that goes back to another couple things I wanted to bring up was, you know, in a very general or overall or broad sense, I think of, the OTO or Thelema or magic as a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times as being a matter of deprogramming. Mm, definitely. I, I can see that. Um, I definitely see that. I definitely see that. I think that um, uh, the, the way I view a lot of what's going on, at least in politics, although you, you've made a pretty firm distinction between what politics is and isn't, especially with like the wokeism and the distractions, but I feel like a lot of what you see is like provoking emotional response and then you're being fed a narrative of what to think about it. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is the issue. 
this is why we're angry at it. And then this is what you're exactly supposed to think about it and post about it, you know? And then, so it's, it's, it's fundamentally like brainwashing to a large yeah. degree. Right. And it's using yeah. emotional um, it's like creating an em emotional pain points and then sort of imprinting based on it. So it's almost like marketing in a, to a degree, right? It's like, yeah, play, play on your pain points. Like for example, say you were extremely overweight, right? And I'm like, Hey, you, you know, don't you feel like a fat piece of shit or whatever? Right? And it's yeah, like, well, yeah. Hey, you, you can still keep eating the same crap, but if you buy this pill, <clears throat> then all your problems will be solved, right? I feel like that's almost like what the government, it's using that same sort of psychology. So that ties into a couple other things I wanted to bring up. Number one, like that's one of the main reasons why I really like Topi. Like mm. Topi uh, was um, Genesis Peorge's brainchild and he, you know, he uh, started it around like 1983 or something like that. And it was like, it was billed or advertised itself sort of as a deprogramming cult, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a cult itself, but its purpose was to deprogram you from <laughs> other cults, right? <laughs> right. But right. When, you, when you look at their propaganda, and I just mean information here at this point, but mm -hmm. when you look at, at the kinds of messages that they put out, like their famous quote, message from the temple, it mm -hmm. was about radical self-responsibility. Like mm -hmm. do what thou wilt is not, uh, Oh, let's just do whatever we want. No, it's the firmest restriction possible in that you're supposed to find your one purpose and then only do that. Right. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I've been uh, recently looking more into the temple of the psychic youth and it just seems like a really amazing what they're doing at that time, especially during that time period. And, even like their use of the different, like the technology given at the time, what, what they were doing with it is quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, I liked their vibe probably more than anything else. I never joined their thing, but they had a bunch of uh, publications that they put out and I paid a lot of attention to that. And I mean, I, their vibe to me was um, like what you were saying before, like there's all these efforts outside in the world that are trying to like program you and you need to be careful and, and deprogram yourself from that, or, or at least shield yourself from that. Right. Definitely. I think I sent you a link to a video and I, I found out that one reason that they kind of fell out, I guess you would say like they got raided nonstop apparently yeah. in England. Yeah. And they, yeah, they were like England. heavily, heavily attacked and they were all these like propaganda campaigns against them by the government, which makes yeah. sense right like these hit pieces how they're killing babies or like yeah. what was it like eating abortion aborted babies yeah. or something right just right. like destroying right. all these like films that's why writings that's... and you know music and so that's so sad that's why they ended up coming to california in their early 90s and actually mm. a funny a funny little um uh just side story is uh, I was following this story at the time in the early nineties. And so I wrote them, I said, Hey, you should come to California because you know, everybody here will love you, you know? Mm -hmm. And they, and just, and just by like coincidence, they ended up coming to California. Th wow. Then later, later he went to New York, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, psychic TV basically ended in the early nineties because 
the the British government raided their their shit and and actually stole a bunch of their shit. And I mean mm-hmm. that sounds bad, right? But then when you realize though, like Genesis, he held tons of really valuable stuff from, for example, William Burroughs. Like mm. so this stuff is basically priceless, right? Like I mean Burroughs is uh, a person who, you know, a lot of his art is in these museums and i mean it's not priceless but it's it's not cheap like this stuff (laughs) if you were to if you were to try to buy it it would be expensive as fuck oh yeah i mean burroughs is a legend too even even someone in like mainstream right and to a degree i mean most people know about him at least um different writings and movies and whatnot but yeah because uh or uh genesis wasn't uh he or she i always get that confused uh wasn't he like a, a student of uh burroughs yeah like yeah Bible or something when the same year i was born 1971 is when he first met uh burroughs oh wow that's a trip huh? yeah very trippy yeah so I, I definitely see your connections with magic uh being political um yeah I can, I can see it. I can definitely see that. Um, I do find that a lot of people too have sort of an anarchist take, right? Like uh, I guess a lot of the occult people, they have more of a, yeah, uh, more of an anarchist or what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's a pretty, pretty accurate right? in general. Yeah. I mean, anarchism of course is a really uh, deep philosophy. I mean, a lot of people who don't, who don't read about this kind of stuff are not aware, but it has a long history of very thoughtful writing. And like, I mean, you may or may not be sympathetic to this political philosophy, but like, I mean, for example, Chomsky identifies himself as an anarchist. Mm -hmm. This is like, and I mean, of course, Chomsky is one of the most serious (laughs) academics like on the planet, right? I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, legend. I was actually originally a um, a uh, uh, linguistic uh, linguistic major, and that's really? like it's yeah yeah for a very short time a very very wow. short time. But what do you think we studied? Like literally the whole first semester was like everything was like Chomsky. Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. And still to this day, I mean, he's like sort of you know like the main course of study for linguistics. Yet alone, a lot of people don't even know that, right? A lot of people just know the yeah. political. Right, YouTube right. Vid- YouTube videos or what have you or maybe maybe books or something, but yeah, political books that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, d- I do definitely see um, how. I mean, eventually, if you see that, if you if you see that you can sort of empower yourself and it's sort of everyone's right to have their power, then you at the, at the same time you can kind of see how you when you have these government. Uh, government hierarchies that are imposing authority on you and not allowing you to do your will, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. How that's sort of, it's kind of anti-magic in a way. Right. Right. Like um, if you, for example, look at the um, at France in the early 18th century, like how much freedom was available to those people. They lived under free, uh, under a feudal system, like not much. Right. Mm-hmm. So um you know, if you live in a country where, you know, basic political freedoms are not available to you, yeah, I mean, you that might be a problem for you, right? 
Oh, no doubt. No doubt. For sure. Or if you live in a society where it's like the, the top 1% has all of the wealth, right? And yeah. really it's like we're just life becomes shittier by the day. It's uh, yeah. yeah, that's definitely not conducive to living a very fulfilling life and sort of makes it more of a struggle if anything, right? Right, so right. To get to a baseline where you can kind of actually perform your will or find what it is, right? It's more, you're still yep. more, it's sort of forcing... The large chunk of society to be in survival mode rather than thriving. It's like keep, yeah. keeping keeping the populace at in coping rather than thriving mode of existence. I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, very interesting takes. What What would you? Uh, you mentioned a, a a book that you were talking about. What book was that? Were you Were you? Um, you mean Peter Gray? Him? Yeah, Peter Gray. Was that a book or an article that you were mentioning? Yeah, no, it was. It's a book. Uh, he released it in uh, 2019, and it's a collection of various Scarlet imprint essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's called uh, "The Brazen Vessel." 2019, the Brazen Vessel. Okay, cool. Yeah. What's the, so? What's the uh, so Peter Gray is the um, he's like the official owner, the founder of Scarlet Gray or Scarlet. Imprint? Yeah, he he and his wife Alkistis Demesh, uh-huh. they um, and I love her too. Like she has these writings on dance and the body, and like the both the both of these people. I mean, I am fully like a convert. I love them. So- <laughs> Yeah, I love them so much. I believe I I heard both of them on a podcast. I believe, God, it must have been. I have to look it up. I think that's how I found out about um, at least about Peter Gray. But yeah, whatever whatever they're doing, it's working. I mean, they're putting out amazing books, and just like the quality is sort of it's like let me ask you top notch. It seems like right. Let me ask you: Did have you bought any of their books yet? I mean, like um, like physical books. That's the thing. I've only got their digital. Uh, okay. I, I bought from them, but only digitally. Yeah. I think I might like send you as a gift one of these <laughs> books because when you, when you receive them in the mail, oh my God, it's like coming, dude. Oh. <laughs> yeah. For uh, bookophiles or what, what's the term? Yeah. For people yeah. like us who really appreciate Bib- good books. Bibliophiles, right. Oh, right bibliophiles. Right. That's the word, right? Yeah. So like, um, first of all, the way they wrap and package the books, like before you even open it up, you look at it and you're like, oh, I know that this has not been damaged. No matter how like it got thrown around in the mail, I know this has not got damaged. And then when you open it up, like, oh, it's just the way it's wrapped. And, and, and then you look at the actual book itself and like the binding and everything. And you just, you're just like, this is like a piece of art. This is, oh my God. And you just, yeah, it's beautiful. It's just so well done. What uh, out of the books that you got? Do you have any favorites from Scarlet Imprint or any ones that? Okay, you're so of course there's there's Encyclopedia Goetica, and that's basically three purchases because mm-hmm. because uh, Jake uh, he split it up into three, um, so the, any of those are fine. Um, uh, uh, the three parts is uh, uh, Cyprian the Mage. Um, um, uh, then there's the Gia Sophia and then there's um, the True Grimoire and the True Grimoire is Jake's translation of um, the historical 
grimoire called the the true grimoire or mm-hmm. grimoireum verum. Mm-hmm. So that that would be the number one. But um, I mean, I can't imagine that you would go wrong. You could you could just close your eyes and then point, you know, and and find <laughs> any any one of their items is fine. I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely gonna have to get some of their physical physical books here sometime. So, I do. I think uh, I actually might pick up because uh, I heard Jake on a recent interview. Uh, he was asked like what like what's the book he's most proud of, or is something mm-hmm. along those lines. And he actually mentioned um, it wasn't Geo Sophia, but it was Cyprian the Mage, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that'd be a cool one to pick up. Uh, maybe if I ever do pick it up and read it, we could have a discussion on it. that'd be kind of a fun podcast too. Sweet. That'd Sweet. be awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, it's a long reading list for a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and at, at least even if they pick up one of these awesome books, I'm sure. This is the, the bibliophile <laughs> episode. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good name for it. The bibliophiles. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's like, it's like the X files, but it has like a book in the background <laughs> or something instead of a UFO. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, all right. Um, do, do you think we've pretty much covered a lot of the book? or uh, the influences or books that you uh, yeah, suggest yeah. or into totally yeah totally um so okay uh but real quick to wrap that up uh so um my my influences early on were topi burroughs principia discordia mm-hmm. philip k dick avatam saka vimala kirti songs of Milarepa, herman hesse Henry Miller, Tom Robbins, Surrealism, Vedanta, Raja Yoga, Austin Spare, Jack Parsons, Rigardi, Thalema, TGD, Cherubim, and Hyatt. Mm, that's not a long list. <laughs> no, no, it's a tiny little list. <laughs> so, so small. <laughs> okay, those are, those are all uh, areas of interest, the majority of what you mentioned. Um, all right, cool. I think people can get a good idea of what you were, uh, where you're coming from, so to speak, right? Um, okay. What about like currently, do you, do you still do a lot of practices or do you kind of, is it kind of a, um, like on a, like needs basis or on a, like a regular hygienic basis or anything like yeah. that? Um, um, my major focus since, uh, 2004 has been, um, HGA and Raja Yoga. Mm, okay. So basically like meditative practices and are there other ritual, like ritual magic practices that you do associated with HGA or anything like that? Well, now I think that uh, resh is uh, extremely important and I try to do it um, four times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, something like reguli is extremely helpful uh, I don't do it every day, but I do it often. I, th- I think Phoenix also, Mass of the Phoenix, mm-hmm. um, is very helpful. And, uh, yeah, those would be probably some of my, my main um, daily slash weekly type uh, practices. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of the, um, the along with yoga. core, along with yoga, yeah. Along with a lot of the core thalamic um, uh, rituals, right? Yeah. Uh, Reguli, I don't know that much about it. Is that like, I mean, I've read through it a long time ago. Is that like almost like a middle pillar exercise or how would you describe that? 
Sure. So the beginning and end part of a regular pentagram ritual is the Kabbalistic cross. But in, in Reguli, he switches up uh, or he replaces the Kabbalistic cross with something that uh, um, resembles more like the middle pillar. Um, uh, in that uh, the chakras are explicitly alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, there's, I mean, with the Kabbalistic cross, you have these Christian references and those are deleted completely. And, um, so instead you have, uh, Tholemic references to Nuit, Hadit, Rahur, Kuit. Mm, okay. Yeah. So it uses the, um, like the Tholemic, Tholemic pantheon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it uses the Tholemic pantheon in the. Um, like the chakra centers as yes. a vibratory formula. Yes. And then in the quarters also with a regular pentagram ritual, you've got various God names, Hebrew God names, Eheye, Adonai, right? Yehovo. Uh, but those are replaced by the Thelemic pantheon. Mm, okay. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So it's almost like a hybrid. It's almost like a Thelemic uh, middle pillar and pentagram ritual in a way. Well, the, as I say, the, the beginning and end of, of the regular pentagram ritual is the Kabbalistic cross, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in Reguli, that Kabbalistic cross is replaced by sort of like a middle pillar. And then the middle uh... part, the middle part of a regular pentagram ritual employs archangels and um, God names, and those are deleted and then uh, uh, instead, what you get are yeah more references to Thelemic Pantheon. Okay, interesting. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to uh, check that out. I'm going through, as you know, I'm going through uh, Gems of the Equinox currently, and so that is so badass. Yeah, it's really man. It's just nice to have a physical. I really, I, I've been reading so many texts for so long on PDF form, or or buying them even on Amazon through um, yeah. through Kindle, you know, on ebook right, mode. Right. And uh, God, it's just so much different to have a real book that you can touch and flip yeah, for, through. You know? For 10 years, I did the same thing from 2004 to 2000. Okay, more like not 10 years, but almost 10 years. Um, I got to Korea in 2004. And for many years, I, I refused to buy any books because I thought my life is too nomadic, too uncertain. How, how can I collect books or how can I justify collecting books? I'm just going to have to move them every fucking year. Right. <laughs> but then, but then I got sort of a more solid job uh, teaching at uni and um, I was there for like seven years. So I'm like, okay, I could buy a book or two here. It's not going to kill me, you know? Mm-hmm. And a book or two turned into like 100 to 200 to 300. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you have a pretty substantial library by now, right? I, I do. You've seen my, my Facebook posts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, yeah, there's nothing like having physical books. That being said, though, I mean, if you can only get access to um, uh, PDFs. like either either PDFs, yeah, which are especially for books that are um, what's the term where it's like, not like a lot of Crowley's materials. They're the technical the Libre. Is it? No, no. The word I'm looking for is like in the public domain. Is that the right word? I see. I see. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I, I mean, basically all of those technical Libre are, they are in the public domain. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for books like that, where you can easily find them online and maybe you don't have the money. A lot of people just don't even yeah. have the money to buy sure, sure. all these crazy occult texts. I mean, I think it's great that I think there's, there's a website called like, uh, Oh man, I forgot. Is it like hermetics.com or something like that where they have all these yeah. books and either in text or PDF. There's several websites like that out there where you can just um, either download or even read them on the website. I think it's a great uh, resource for people who just can't afford all these expensive occult books. Right. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, uh, you you probably know, like a lot of a lot of Thelemites have very big libraries, and so like um, the 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 financial commitment with just the library alone is is a little bit uh, for, forbidding. Right, right. And with a lot of these books, it's like you pick up one book and. It's like, uh, yeah, then refer to this in this book. <laughs> refer to the, Like one book will lead you to get 10 more, which leads yeah. you to get 100 more. Like it's, it becomes this yeah. compounding thing, right? And so right. Um, to a degree, like at least for me, I mean, for me, the main thing is also like moving around a lot and all these other things. But it's, um, it, it's more useful for me to get like ones, like essential ones that I feel like I'll, yeah. uh, so something like Gems of the Equinox where it's like that'll, that's like a lifetime book. And every right. now and, and every, yeah, every now and then maybe get like a, a one that might not be a lifetime book, like a pleasure book or something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, gems is very thick, but roughly half of it minimum is like extremely practical. It's not theoretical text. Right. Exactly. So something like that is just good to have. Um, yeah. Uh, physically, right? And I think uh, I think I saw a Facebook post recently. It was uh, Frater Acker or Acher. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh-huh. But uh, he posted like it's almost like a guide for buying books. Like, do I really need this book? Is it gonna be? <laughs> is it gonna be? Especially for people who buy a lot of books, or or maybe 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 they don't even buy a lot of books. But it's sort of like, is it really worth getting this specific book, right? Physically, I think that's kind of kind of a good guide. You can look at it. But that's uh, cool. It's like filtering whether you really need it, or have you even? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of determining. I think it's a good little like rubric to review, but uh, yeah, okay. So you you practice uh, a lot of the core uh, thelemic uh, rituals pretty regularly, yeah. yes. um, and along with yoga, which um, I think a lot of people are sort of surprised when they hear that. I think Crowley, one thing that a lot of people who haven't really read him don't know that he sort of brought in the Eastern mysticism. He brought in the yoga and um, things like this so a lot of people might be surprised who aren't really well versed on this stuff like oh yoga and magic like what's the correlation but i think crowley one of his like main contributions was sort of bringing um sort of practices from the east into into the western practices right yeah so Uh, i was a little bit i was a little bit skeptical actually for many years about his actual exposure to yoga but then like if you if you read equinox volume one number four it it's about two years worth uh roughly of journals like from 03 to 04 no no i'm sorry more like 01 to 03 and it it details it just in depth his his daily practice with Alan Bennett and I don't think you can read this and come away and think to yourself oh Crowley was a fake 
no fucking way the guy was the the guy was the real deal whatever else he was you might not like him you might not whatever but you one thing you cannot say is that he was a fake he, he definitely was not right right and he was definitely one of the first um uh westerners at least i, yeah, I wouldn't totally. say like he was he was exactly the first but he was one of the early uh westerners to go over i mean a little, if you look at like where he was traveling like india and nepal and what was that like burma or uh, yeah. all, all these countries and sort of digging into these texts he was he's sort of the underappreciated like bringing yoga to the west right one of the right like, well so previously you had these various scholars who would present this material in a very scholarly way and that's valuable but one of the cool things about Crowley was he didn't just like read these things. Mm -hmm. he, he, he practiced with, and he didn't just practice with Alan Bennett. He also practiced with people who were native of that area. And mm -hmm. so his, his like real day-to-day -day experience was not just book knowledge, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So. And so, and he his first publications along these lines are the Equinox, and so that's around 1909, 1910. And so before that time, like I'm not aware of any Westerner having deep uh, practice knowledge of this kind of stuff. I mean, there might be people, but I'm not aware of them. Right, exactly. Like I was <clears throat> saying, he's pretty, he might not have been the first, but you know, I mean, at least in recorded history who at least somebody who went over there did the practices recorded them uh yeah. published some of them i mean he's definitely pioneering in that regard so mm -hmm. um and there's also a recent book uh by Churton. Churton, yeah what was it it's like crowley what, what's the name of it do you recall something about something about crowley in india i'm, I'm not sure yeah something like that but uh I think you, you mentioned you might have a copy of it, but I think that would be interesting to read just from, just because it's an interesting story that a lot of people don't it know. It is. It uh, is. I mean, yeah. like, so the, the East, quote unquote, is a huge area and Crowley ends up exploring a, a fuck ton of the East. He doesn't just like visit China, Japan and Thailand and then go home. No. This motherfucker treks across the whole goddamn place. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's amazing. Quite amazing. How you know, like, yeah, for sure. Like in the '60s, you had he's he's almost like the original hippie, right? Because if you yeah, look at like, yeah. it was almost like marketed like it was the '60s where people first took drugs and then they went over to India. But like, he was doing this like, like yeah, hundred years before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or whatever, right? Like a long time prior to that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah. yeah that's kind of trippy and most people are just going to India to like a single guru or ashram like this dude's going to like Myanmar and like all these obscure yeah. you know uh, all these obscure spots well and most most people who did that in the 60s are you know it's sort of like a vacation for them I think they, <laughs> they you know they they go for one or two weeks and then they go home I mean now obviously uh, spiritual tourism basically right now I mean obviously some people stay for a year or more and and they took it seriously but I think a lot of people stayed a week or two and then went home you know right right it kind of reminds me I spent uh it was a little over a month in Bali and that's kind of like the vibe of Bali it's like you have a lot of people who go there for like 
a week to find themselves and go to the yoga yeah, studio, yeah. the ashram yoga ashrams and uh like ubud it's called right and it kind of <laughs> sort of the uh i mean i'm not i don't want to di- uh, bash these people or anything like that like right it's enriching your life i mean it's cool but there there certainly is a we can we can certainly distinguish between somebody going to all these countries and journaling these practices meticulously right yes versus somebody who you know went for a snapshot for instagram or something like that it's definitely not well, the, the other, same thing the other cool thing about equinox volume one number four is like the number of uh texts like the shiva samhita and the yoda pradipika mm-hmm. like the number of like texts that are classics that he ends up uh, discussing in this like it's it's only about 150 pages the, mm-hmm. this section um but it's very dense like he he has not only firsthand day-to-day experience with the meditation practices but he can intelligently discuss the various things that are that are talked about in these texts so it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty impressive like uh, or or helpful um book to buy if you happen to be interested in yoga oh for sure for sure and uh what's the name of the book uh, eight lectures on yoga that's yeah. another of his that's a great uh i mean it's not only great um like a, a great yoga information or knowledge but it's very funny and interesting and it's not yeah. it's not dry at all it's like it's almost like i almost feel like out of what i've read of crowley's that might even be like the first thing i would advise people to read recommend yeah, yeah because i think if you read that you're just like holy shit not only is it like enlightening and there's not only is it useful and like practical in some ways yeah but it's like entertaining and interesting and funny yeah. and uh well i think i think know. one re- i think one reason why that that book shines so brightly is because it's one of the last things he writes mm, interesting uh i think the last thing that he writes is the the book of thoth but a couple years before the book of Thoth, he does these lectures and then they're transcribed later um, and then published. But yeah, he, I mean, he's like uh, about, yeah, he's early sixties at this point. So he's like, he's this old grandpa who doesn't give a fuck anymore. Mm. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's sort of unhinged, right? <laughs> well, not, I mean, I mean, not unhinged, but like he's, he, he's not like the, the world and his path and, and, (coughs) and everything is no longer weighing him down at all. He's like, he, he's free, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. That's what I meant to say for sure. Uh, One question I'm curious to ask you because, you know, you've been in this, uh, a culture or whatever you want to call it uh, Uh for quite a long time. Right. You said since the late eighties, is that right? That's, that's right. So about almost 33 years. I'm just curious from your perspective, like what, what sort of like major shifts have you seen or how, oh, how, cool. how, would, how would you relate? Okay. So since you came at like maybe then, well, not maybe then you came, came into this sort of in the late eighties and a lot of people yeah. who are listening to this um, maybe are just now, you know, finding out about this or getting into these topics and practices, what would you say have been like major, uh, what, are, what are some major differences or like shifts in the tide, so to speak? Okay, so I'm glad you brought this up because this is this was definitely one of the things I wanted to to briefly discuss. Um, uh, I feel like in, and and Jake has 
on his Facebook has sort of confirmed this, but I feel like in the seventies and in the eighties, the occult scene, quote unquote, was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. Like um, people were doing their own thing. They were innovating, they were exploring. Um, but I feel like after the late eighties, a lot of that innovation and freedom and whatever goes way downhill and disappears. So in the eighties, in the seventies and the eighties, you have, for example, chaos magic, and then soon after the uh, soon after the eighties begin, you have Topi, um, and um, but yeah, like Topi ends up he sh- he shuts that down in the early nineties because of the pushback from the British government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's I think things go uh, a little bit silent after the early nineties, mm. and. And I just my experience is that we right now are in a bit of a, a cool revival stage, like things are getting exciting again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem like that, at least from uh, at least from my perspective, it does seem like it's almost like another almost like a mini renaissance. There are people like experimenting with new things. And a lot of people, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, are sort of uh, digging more into the past, um, mm-hmm. so, sort of um I think I, I think I mentioned like the marriage of like practitioners and scholarship and yeah history. I mean, that's probably uh, a somewhat new thing, you know, not, not like it wasn't happening in the seventies or eighties, but there's definitely like a huge resurgence of it right now. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I feel like people got comfortable in the early nineties and thought that magic was this. And so they did this and they'd stop and they didn't do they didn't, they decided they were comfortable and they didn't need to like look for new things at all, or they didn't need to like try new things that they, they knew what magic and Thelema and everything was. And, and, and they had it all figured out and don't show me new stuff. I don't want to see new stuff. Like I, I know what this is. I'm comfortable with it. But like nowadays, like people are like, you know what? Nobody knows anything. Let's, let's just try anything, you know, let's mm-hmm. try anything. Yeah, yeah, it's good uh, keeping an open mind if you can, you know. I mean, yeah. that's. Uh, I think that 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 seems like a really cool aspect of the chaos magic scene, like you're mentioning, is yeah. that it was so experimental, and I think that um, I think that mindset in general is very useful in life in general, not only in this area, but having an open mind, experimenting, recording results. I think that's really how you have amazing experiences and also potentially dangerous experiences too, but nothing, (laughs) nothing, nothing really worth, um, you know, doing is not going to have an element of risk as long as you're smart about it. Right. But um, yeah, I think having that sort of experimental spirit is important. And even like, if you go back to the Crowley stuff, it's like, yeah, do the practices, journal it, experiment and sort of see the results. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, and other people and scientific other, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that he says a lot, which I, I appreciate, is you know other people are not in a position to comment about what you do. Like you, mm-hmm. your practice is yours. Like mm-hmm. you're the best judge of the the rightness of your practice. You know, um, I mean, of course you can you can obtain guidance from other people. That's possible, but at the end of the day you're responsible for what you do 
And, you know, if other people don't like it, that's their problem. <laughs> yeah. That's a very, uh, that's a very liberating thing, right? Like it's, it's really at the end of the day, you can only judge based on your experiences and your um, no one can really confer anything onto you that you haven't really conferred onto yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the one hand, like, for example, with writing, I think one of the keys to writing is you have to share with other people and get some feedback. So at, with this on, this on the same idea, like with, with magic, you, you should not be like hermetically closed off from the world. You need to get feedback somehow, but this, this feedback should not control you. You should, you should look at it intelligently as an independent person, you know, who has their own mind. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. Is there anything else? Actually, we're almost into two hours here. Are there any uh, other, we made some notes uh, previously. Are there any other things uh, you would like to go over? Let's see. Um, I think we've covered most everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think we've done a, a really amazing job of, of, of covering stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. Definitely going to have to go listen back to this one. It was a good uh, conversation. And I think it'd be cool to have like a round two later on down the line, maybe after I get, uh, um, we're talking about Encyclopedia Goetica, maybe even yeah, covering like, because like, um, everyone I know, including you, uh, like they always mention Geosophia, Geosophia, and it was great. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I haven't read uh, Cyprian the Mage and I almost never even really hear it mentioned. It's sort of like the the bastard child of the series or something like that. It seems yeah. like, cause you, I mean, you rarely hear it mentioned even, right? Like it's mentioned as well, part of the trilogy, uh, but it, I haven't really seen people go into it or discuss it. So that'd be kind of a cool, like a different thing. I feel like too, even if we, uh, you know, I can read it and then take some notes. Maybe you can review it. We could do a little discourse on it. That'd be fun. Sweet. Ah, I'd love it. Our next episode, you and I, whatever we end up doing, we should, drill in on one or two things because we were all over the map here <laughs> oh for sure for sure well it's good to do different styles right like oh, yeah, i think no. a, a lot of people enjoy a conversation like this where it's all over no the map. i don't think it was a, i don't think it was a bad thing but just yeah it was very very general and and that kind of thing Oh, for sure. For sure. And then, uh, yeah, the next one we'll have, we'll, we'll come, we'll come prepared. Maybe it'll be a video one. We'll have our PowerPoint slides. It'll be the opposite. Yeah, baby. PowerPoint. <laughs> the, 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 the professional podcast. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we can wrap up here and, um, I'll, uh, is there any, that's another thing. Is there anything you would like to link or shout out because, I can uh, link it in the show notes for people. Um, Let's see. Um, I would just say um, uh, if you're interested in uh, Golden Dawn stuff, there's a lot of various um, sources for that. But in my opinion, one of the better sources is david's material and unfortunately it's not always easy to find so i will give you a link where that can help people to find um the tgd stuff oh that would be great okay i'll definitely include that in the show notes and um people can look into that and as i mentioned i'm sure that if people listen to this podcast all the way through they're going to have a whole list of 
stuff to look <laughs> into too if they haven't already you know dove, <laughs> dove into all that stuff so all right cool all right well thanks for coming on boone and until next time ryan it's been a pleasure